This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The Doctrine of Christ. Although Peter does not develop the doctrine of Christ, there is much in this epistle that I have learned and I would like to communicate with you. One text, here it is. 2 verse 21. 2.21 To this you were called, that is to be commendable before God, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an, an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but we are really like Jonah. Typical. Jonah was called by God to go to a city. <laughs> no, no. No, I have no interest in doing that. I'm going aboard ship and I'm going the other way. Instead of going east, I'm going west. I'm going to Tarsus. That is, Spain. Well, you know, there was a big storm. And then, <clears throat> the shipmates tossed him overboard and there was Jonah. So, Jonah was, first of all, running away from God. Secondly, he was running to God in the belly of the whale. And then God calls him the second time. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And then Jonah is running with God. Yes, obediently he goes to Nineveh. And what does he do after he has preached? He sits outside the city gate and he is waiting for God to destroy these people. What was he doing? doing he was running ahead of God and oh yes we don't mind walking in the footsteps of Jesus but Lord you're going so slow <laughs> let me run ahead of you and there we go and the Lord back you follow me I lead not you I lead and what do we do Lord I'm going to do this for you. Uh -huh. <coughs> Wouldn't it be a lot better to say, Lord, here I am, your servant, and will you give me opportunities of service, and now I'll wait for these opportunities to come. No, you're not wasting your time. The Lord immediately will put you to work. And then constantly you're asking, Lord, how must I do it? Lord, what must I do? Will you show me? That is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Okay, with reference to Jesus Christ, we have a number of texts. I already talked about chapter 2. Go back to it. Peter has Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah in his hand. And I want to re you to read with me a few texts. 
already. I talked about verse 21. Now I go on to verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Straight from Isaiah 53 verse 9. Word for word. When they hurled insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself who judges justly. 24. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Once more, Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray. And now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. All from Isaiah chapter 53. Peter teaches the doctrine of atonement. When he talks about the sprinkling by Christ's Christ's blood. 1 verse 2. And to the redemption of the believer with the precious blood of Christ. 1 verse 19. Now, does Peter talk about the divinity of Jesus? And the answer is yes. He does so by placing Jesus on the level of God the Father and mentions them together in at least two verses. So once more I go to chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Notice. He says, God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by His blood. Jesus Christ is on the level of God the Father. And if you don't believe it, go on to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, will you please tell me, in verse 3, the second sentence, to whom does he refer? In his great mercy he has given us new birth. Is that God the Father? Or is that God the Father and the Lord Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit? I would rather say this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We continue. Peter mentions the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. He already talks about the resurrection in verse 3. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he also talks about the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, And this water symbolizes baptism to save you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection. And then the benediction. This beautiful benediction which you find in verse 
10 of chapter 5. Read along with me, will you? Chapter 5, 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Once more, I have to talk a moment about chapter 3, verse 20, 21, those verses. I'm not going to take time out now to deal with the exegesis. I'm only bringing the text to your, your attention and I will exegete it carefully probably tomorrow morning if not later. No, I'm running out of time. I can see that right now. Tomorrow morning I will deal with the exegesis of verse 19 of chapter 3. Here's verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. 20 who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, what do you do with that text? How do you explain? Well, hold on, it's going to come. I will give it to you in detail. All I can do now is say, yes, we read here about the Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 22. So you have the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus in verse 18. In verse 22, the ascension who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. They have the doctrine of Christ's death Resurrection and Ascension. Now talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. References to the Holy Spirit are few in Peter's epistle. Jot down these references, will you? 1 verse 2, verse 11, verse 12. I say again, 1, verse 2, 11, and 12, and 4, verse 14. The work of the Holy Spirit ranges from sanctifying the elect, chapter 1, verse 2, predicting the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow, 1, verse 11, and guiding those who have preached the gospel, 1.12. And the Spirit takes an active role in the resurrection of Christ, 3.18. 
And then, last, you have the spirit of glory resting on suffering Christians, 4.14. I take time out for just a moment to talk about chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. A lengthy section talking about the Holy Spirit. I read for you chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things, and the Greek literally says, and with outstretched neck they are looking into our salvation. But what are you going to do now with verse 10? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, when Isaiah wrote down, Unto us a son is given, a child is born, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And the people said to Isaiah, What are you talking about? Did Isaiah say, Beats me. I'm merely recording. Don't ask me. Or were these prophets earnestly seeking to find out what the Spirit of God said about the Messiah? The answer is, of course. Of course. The rabbis in Jerusalem knew very well where the Christ was to be born. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 in Bethlehem of Ephrata. That's where he is to be born. Yes. And they also knew Isaiah 53. I'd like to tell you something about Isaiah 53. During my graduate days at the Free University of Amsterdam, I made use of a Jewish library. Now, you may know that the Jews, prior to the Second World War, occupied a whole section of Amsterdam, which was called the Jordan. And that's why you had to diamond factory workers and the diamond dealers. And all these Jews, sad to say, were shipped to Germany and perished in concentration camps. But the library stayed. And so I made use of the library. And I had to consult a series of commentaries and one of the books was on Isaiah. And I opened it up And I was curious what the 
Jewish commentator would do with Isaiah 53. And then I looked it up and he commented on Isaiah 52 and the next chapter was 54. Not a word about 53. It didn't exist. Sad to say. Isaiah spoke about the suffering of Christ and the prophets knew. Good. I continue with point four. We talked now about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now we talk about the church. Peter employs the word church nowhere in this entire epistle. But he uses other words to express the concept. He talks about God's elect. He talks about strangers in the world. He talks about a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. I'm talking about 2 verse 9. You don't always have to use the well-worn words such as church. You can also use other expressions. These terms derive from the Old Testament. And the members of Christ's church are a continuation of spiritual Israel. So a royal priesthood and a holy nation are terms that go back to Exodus 19, verse 6. And now to say something very profound, you have to do that once in a while. Exodus 19 precedes Exodus 20. Now what do you find in chapter 20? The Decalogue. And now the people of Israel were to prepare themselves to meet their God who would give them the Ten Commandments. And what does God say by way of Moses? He says to the people, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Look it up. Talking about Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. 19, verse 6. I begin reading at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Quote, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. End of quote. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, Good. Peter calls Jesus the spiritual shepherd and overseer of God's people. You find that at the end of chapter 2, 2 verse 25. 
Peter is modest. Notice how he puts it in chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ. Now look, (laughs) he could have said, to the elders I command as the chief of the apostles. I am at the top, you know. And I used to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's the mother church. Now I tell you that you must be good shepherds of God's flock No, 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 no. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. I'm at your level. Now, eschatology. Eschatology. In view of the intense suffering the readers had to endure, Peter gives indication that they are living in the last days during which Jesus' return is imminent. No, 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 no. No, he is not saying that. What he is saying is the end of all things is near. In other passages, that is in 4 verse 7, in other passages, Peter discloses that he and his contemporaries are living in the last days. Now, did they make a mistake? 2,000 years have gone by. In 2 verse 12, he says this. 2 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And then He encourages the sufferers. Once more I refer to the benediction. In 5 verse 10, And the God of grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. Yes, I realize all that. But nowhere does Peter say, and I know exactly when the Lord returns. It's not there. No. He leaves that an open question. But what he does is to encourage the believers who are suffering. Now, would you like to be in the Sudan right now? I'm talking about the southern portion of the Sudan where Christian agencies are bringing in food to the starved, famished population suppressed and persecuted by an Islamic government and then that Christian aid is channeled to the Islamic soldiers. Now, what are you going to say to these people who are suffering for the Lord Jesus? You can very well say you are now in the great tribulation. And you can very well expect the end of time. One of the graduates of Reformed Seminary is a native of Indonesia, the island of Java, I visited her last October 
And before I came, the Islam militants had 600 of them with machine guns had entered the island of Ambon, Christian island, where they were mowing down the Christians. And also what the Islamic militants did, I don't know if you're acquainted with all these islands. You say, well, I have a nodding acquaintance. One of the major islands is Sulawesi. The northern tip area of Sulawesi is a Christian area. And that's where the Wycliffe Bible translators have headquarters. Because there are some, oh, I'm guessing now, 300 different languages in Indonesia. They were busy for the last 20 years putting everything on the computer and on CDs and getting all these languages translated. And where does Satan strike by way of the Islamic militants? Right at Wycliffe headquarters and they wiped out the personnel. They burned the buildings. They destroyed all the equipment, the computers and the printers, what have you. And Satan would say, ha, ha, see, I won. I stopped the word of God. We were at Wycliffe headquarters about a month ago, six weeks ago, in Orlando. And I asked the lady, what have you people done now? And you know what she said? We go right back in and build it up. Build it up. Because not Satan is the victor. The book of Revelation teaches us very clearly, Christ is the victor. And the more Satan oppresses and persecutes the church, the faster the church grows. Now back to this Indonesian student. She wrote me just before I came. She says, we are living in oppression and persecution. We are not feeling safe anymore. And Jesus is coming very, very soon. That's how you have to look at it. We live in relatively a period of relative ease and comfort. And we look at the people who are being persecuted. What a difference. But what we have to say is we have to be ready. And as long as the Lord is giving us ability and strength, we must go forth serving Him wholeheartedly. As John Calvin used to put it, into your hand, Lord, I commit my spirit joyfully and thankfully, sincerely. Okay, the will of God, the last point, and then I'm finished. The apostle encourages the will of God, the apostle encourages the Christians to live a life that is commendable so that pagans may acknowledge their good deeds and even glorify God. To verse 12. They should live and suffer in obedience to God's will. 
4, verse 2 and 19. Christians know that God's will is determinative in their lives, for He expects them by their behavior to win others for Christ. Peter appeals directly to the example Christ has set and thus he counsels the readers to walk in the steps of Jesus. 2 verse 21. In conclusion, the Christian can never act independently of Jesus' example, but must always be in Christ. And that's the theology of Peter. The recipients. The recipients resided in the northern part and the western part of Asia Minor. We have the names Pontus, Galatia, which is central, Cappadocia, that's the east. Asia is the west, and Bithynia is the northwest. We assume that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was taught, proclaimed by, here it comes, students of Paul. And the reason why I'm saying this is when Paul, on his third missionary journey, came to Ephesus, he resided there for three years. And one of the first things he did was to open a school to train future pastors. You know about the Hall of Tyrannus? Tyrannus said, Paul, you can rent my hall, my lecture hall, but I have to use it in the morning hours when it is cool. My students like to have a cool place. But by 11 o'clock, it gets warm in that hall. You may use it at a fee until 4 o'clock. By that, it cools off again, and then I like to use it. Paul said, I work with my own hands. So, 6 o'clock in the morning, he was busy as a tent maker. Came 11 o'clock, he was lecturing to 4 o'clock. Then he used the evening hours to go from door to door, convincing both Jews and Greeks, Greek-speaking people, of the gospel of the Lord. So Paul was always busy. But he taught there three years. When he left, Timothy took over. When John came, John taught there. The students of Paul were sent to evangelize. And so, in Asia Minor, there were numerous churches. And Peter also traveled 
to these churches. Well, how do you know? Well, Paul talks about the missionary trips and the work that Peter was doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 9, pardon me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look it up. Paul is appreciative of what Peter is doing. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? 5. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? So Peter traveled. And Peter is now writing a letter about the year 64, is writing a letter to these people in Asia Minor. Now, Peter mentions Pontus and Bithynia separately, and research has proven that Roman administrators had turned these two areas into one province. Well, look, if you've always talked about two areas where you have been, and now by way of Roman government officials you're taught or told, now, Pontus and Bithynia are one. It's hard to change gears and say, okay, I'll adapt. The recipients were both Jews on the one hand, Gentiles on the other hand. Jews, as we already have seen, <clears throat> are addressed in 1 verse 1 to God's elect covenant people, strangers in the world scattered. But Paul also, pardon me, <clears throat> Peter also is talking about those who are Gentiles. Peter reminds them that formerly they lived in ignorance. Look at 1 verse 14. They were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to them from their forefathers. 1 verse 18. And in 2 verse 10 we read, Once they were not a people, but now they are the people of God. <coughs> and last, in 4 verse 3, we read that they had spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. In short, Peter is writing both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And now you can say, well, Paul is the missionary too. The Gentiles. And Peter, according to Galatians chapter 2, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. <laughs> yes. But Paul says, and open your Bibles to 
Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, we have the address to the Ephesian elders who came to Paul on the beach of Miletus. And notice what he says in verse 21. Acts 20, verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. If then Paul is bringing the gospel to both Jews and Greeks, may we not expect that also Peter is bringing the gospel to the Jews and to the Greeks. Now a word about persecutions. In four of the five chapters of this epistle of Peter, the writer alludes to the persecution of Christians. And this, by the way, is still going on today. May I bring to your attention for just a moment that Christians are persecuted by Islam. Christians are persecuted by Hindus. Christians are persecuted by Buddhists. Christians are persecuted by communists. Christians are persecuted by secularists. May I ask you, are secularists persecuted at all? Are communists persecuted at all? Are Mohammedans persecuted at all? Are Hindus persecuted at all? Are Buddhists persecuted? And the answer is no. But all these, may I call them pagan forces persecute the Christians. Should we be surprised? No, not at all. Should we be fearful? No, not at all. (coughs) Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) Jesus is the victor and we are victorious with him. What we can do is go to Peter's epistle and read what our attitude should be. We are suffering all kinds of trials, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 3, the verses 15 and 16, he talks about giving an answer having a clear conscience, having good behavior, and not paying attention to slander. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. 1 Peter 4, starting to read at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quote, and he quotes now, Proverbs 11.31, If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Finally, the suffering which Christians experienced was widespread. Bread. Look at 5 verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Nero <clears throat> burned the city of Rome in July of 64 and blamed the Christians for his deed. He was the arsonist, not the Christians. And Roman historians tell us that Nero burned Christians at the stake in Rome. And that really points to a fiery trial. Yet we do have a few questions concerning that fiery trial painful trial, as the NIV has it. Because when you talk about a date, is Peter writing after Nero burned the city of Rome or is he talking in a period prior to the burning of Rome? Because if you say after the burning of Rome, then you really have difficulty understanding how Peter can say in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 13 and especially verse 17. 13 reads as follows, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, Caesar, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And then verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, are you going to say, I must honor 
Nero, excuse me for the word, that upstart who assumed the throne at the age of 17 and now probably was 26 years of age. And do you have respect for Nero? Just read what Suetonius, the historiographer, Roman historiographer, has to say about the life of Nero. It's horrible. So there we have a bit of a problem. I just bring it to your attention. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.